Welcome to the Progressive Money Canada podcast. Worldwide, countries and their citizens are experiencing historic levels of financial debt and a lack of money. Is all this inescapable or is there an underlying systemic factor that we can change? Join your hosts, Ed and Jeff, to explore solutions for correcting our monetary system, the most underappreciated topic of our time. This is Episode 6, The PMC Plan versus Monetary Reform Alternatives. In this episode, we'll recap previously mentioned alternatives to the PMC plan in the monetary reform space, just to make sure that we get Jeff's response to each of them. And then we'll continue on with others that we haven't discussed yet. Jeff, we've discussed alternatives to Progressive Money Canada. So with respect to alternative community currencies, that is the Let's system, Mountain Hours, Bristol dollars, things like that. The essential problem that I think we put our finger on was the one of acceptance and take up. And the other problem that you pointed out was that if you try to introduce alternative community currencies and make them, let's say, talk to each other in in, uh, larger networks scaled up, you're going to eventually arrive at the same problem where you need a central authority to somehow coordinate their standards and so on. Have I pretty much summarized that correctly? Yes, very well. The other thing that we talked about is the Austrian school of thought and their adherence to a gold standard. Money is not strictly a commodity. They want to insist that it is a commodity and then tie it to something physical. But the whole thing uh, is a fallacy when you agree that money is a medium of exchange whose intrinsic value does not have to be anything at all and is not anything at all when you look at the fact that uh, most of money out there is already digital. Yeah, that's uh, a, a good summary. And then we talked about Ellen Brown and Michael Hudson. And you mentioned that with regard to Ellen Brown and the public banking system, you, you sympathize with her approach. One main difference is that in the PMC proposal, you might agree to have a debt instrument in the first phase but eventually you want to move to a point where there's no debt instrument whatsoever tied to the issue of currency. Whereas Ellen seems to be focusing on having a bond, a treasury note, something like that, to be able to issue the uh, the currency. But other than that, you have a lot of common points. Yeah, for sure. One more. Tom Greco talks about commercial exchanges, parallel systems among businesses, so that you can do goods and services exchange and you would value them in a, in a common currency, probably the existing currency, but uh, you're bypassing the bank system with respect to fees and facilitation of exchange. Are you familiar with Tom Greco and commercial exchanges? Not exactly, but I'm familiar with the idea. The idea, first, the premise that the system cannot be changed, I think, is not valid. I mean, of course, it's going to be politically difficult, but our Banking and monetary system, it's changing all the time. Uh, I'll give you one example. The large value transfer system, they they use the large value transfer system to make sure everybody's balance sheet is uh, zeroed out. So then they just recently changed it to links. And now within the next year or so, they're going to change it to real time rail. These things are changing all the time. So to say that it can't be changed is just not true. Whether you can 
change it to benefit the majority of us rather than a few? Well, that's a pretty legitimate question. Um, and the only way that we can ever tackle that is through education so that people are aware, yeah, we could have a different system if we chose to. Going back for a second to Michael Hudson, his analysis is really inspiring. He recommends that we copy what they did in antiquity and establish a jubilee. But other than that, he doesn't seem to propose any structural changes. I'm probably misrepresenting his case. But let me get your take on Michael Hudson and any solution that he might have mentioned. This debt jubilee. There's other people that advocated too, people like Steve Keen who uh, currently I'm at odds with, he advocates a debt jubilee, which is fine, but it's only a temporary measure. So that's the problem with that. That's not a permanent solution. You still have the same underlying system that caused the problem in the first place. I don't see it as a solution. It's just a stopgap measure. Let's move on now to a few things that we haven't discussed in our previous talks. Offline, you mentioned to me Huber, Dyson, and sovereign currencies. Can you go over what what they're all about and how PMC might differ? Well, they all have subtle differences. You can actually find out what those differences are on the PMC website under the CBDCs Do We Need It, which is referring to central bank digital currencies. They're advocating that the central bank digital currency would be a good stepping stone to a sovereign money system. The the important distinction is none of them really talk about the distribution aspect of it. Huber does hint a, a little bit at distribution in that, you know, you would create it and it would first come into existence through government spending. That kind of parallels the PMC plan, but it's totally dependent on distribution. Okay, so now you have a central bank digital currency. How does that first come into existence? Currently, when new money is created, it's the people that get the first use of that money that the system uh, uh, creates this big advantageous position you know, for banks, that they get to create this money, they get to charge interest on it. Um, so they're, that's why they're always at the top of the, uh, the fiscal pyramid. Um, so that's, that's where I differ. It's, you, if you're talking about uh, new or money creation uh, for the benefit of the public, you have to talk about distribution. All right. In the first video that had inspired you back in the day, Money as Debt, he does talk about a solution. Perhaps it's in in second or third video. He talks about self-issued credit. Did you get a clear picture of what his solution was supposed to be? No. And as soon as something is maybe a little fuzzy or a little foggy, if you have a good solid understanding of what money is in our current system, then Right away, it becomes a little suspect. And I, I can't really speak too intelligently on his particular proposal. But I think I remember when I first heard it, I just kind of summarily dismissed it. There might be some validity in it, because, like I said, he get in his video, he gets everything right, um, with the exception of fractional reserve banking. That's about all I can really say on it. Well, it reminds me of going back to Termel, who I mentioned a few times. He likes the idea of someone assigning to themselves a certain value on the marketplace by virtue of their skills, their willingness to work, and you could even put it into the system by virtue of uh, what you've already done. You could point to a credit instead of to a, a, an IOU, a promise to pay. So, for example, you know, I went and helped out at a senior's center, and then you put that up on a network, and someone assigns value to that and gives you credit. That's the only connection that I made with the Grignon self-issued credit idea. 
Yeah, and the problem with that, again, is it works locally. What happens when you start to marry your credit system with the neighboring town? And one person's idea of their value uh, differs substantially from your idea. In the Mountain Hours solution, they tried to solve that problem by saying that we'll just make time our common measure. And I think that's probably the best solution. If you were to try to implement a system like that, in a way, that's what backs our current system. There's a kind of an averaging of what the value of money is. And again, that's fine for local, but I'm looking at the macro sense, both country and worldwide. All right. Can you summarize what modern monetary theory, MMT, is all about, what their essential goal is, what's their driving force, and their, the consequence of their proposal? I'm basing it on their publications. So all the material that I've read from Randy Ray, one of the founding fathers, to Warren Wolsler and Stephanie Kelton. So those are kind of the key players. So I use their publications to establish what MMT is. And the cornerstone of MMT is the so-called STAB hypothesis. Using the scientific method, it doesn't qualify as a theory. It's just a conjecture, mainly. It says that the government must create money first before taxing and borrowing can occur. So they're suggesting that all the money in existence is issued by the government. A uh, huge fallacy. Um, the majority of money in circulation is created by privately owned commercial banks through the loans process. Lots of data to support that. When you ask an mmt where, where the majority of the money comes from, they will admit that. But when they're trying to sell the stab hypothesis, um, they'll just forget about that portion. I've questioned Warren Mosler. There, there's a, a video. He was doing a talk for uh, Green Party of Canada. So I was able to question him for about 10 or 15 minutes just to kind of expose this stab hypothesis. And so whenever they're questioned directly, it just falls right apart. And the problem with stab too is, okay, if the government creates uh, all the money, it leads to other fallacies like taxes don't pay for anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's just ludicrous uh, that federal taxes don't pay for anything. In Stephanie Kelton's paper, can taxes and bonds pay for government spending? And she's suggesting they don't. Okay. What I want to know is, what is the logical consequence of their proposals? In other words, what are they aiming at? Well, this is another thing. It's another mixed bag. It depends on which MMT you're talking about. So there's a confusion among MMTers themselves because they misinterpret. They don't really understand how the system works itself, but they claim they do through STAB, which is completely backwards to the way it actually works. Taxes and boring precede government spending, just the way you probably imagine it works. That's how it works. So uh, all the money has to be collected through taxation revenue. It's collected into a uh, an account held at the Bank of Canada um, that the government uses to spend. And all spending by the government has to go through that account. So the underlying philosophy or one of the things uh, MMT advocates is a, a job guarantee program. It's a good idea, I think, but it has nothing to do with their descriptive analysis of how the existing system works. It's totally irrelevant to that. Um, so there's all kinds of confusion uh, with regard to MMT, but somehow it got a lot of traction because they're saying things like, you just let the government spend. People that really don't understand what the cornerstone of what MMT is, this stab hypothesis, they're saying, yeah, MMT is a failure because of the current inflation that we're experiencing. 
Well, the current inflation we're experiencing has got nothing to do with MMT either. Nobody seems to really know. If you talk to MMTers and I'm involved with a lot of these debates online, they can't agree amongst themselves what MMT is. But it did get this traction, and uh, there's funding behind it too. Just like we've been talking about how money money rules. So there was funding available for Stephanie Kelton, a lot of it through Warren Mosler apparently. The message is just it's okay for the government to spend. Don't worry about it. It sounds, on the face of it, as if this is just another aspect of complexity and obfuscation. Oh, it's so that is so true. Um, I have a whole uh, page dedicated to debunking MMT. Well, first, I, I compliment MMT, but the way they arrive at the conclusions has to be checked. I produced three major videos, Modern Money, Forget Theory 1, 2, and 3, which cover the, the main aspects of what MMT is according to the, the published stuff. And it's just there's no data at all to support what they're saying as far as the government creates all the money in existence. You've already covered this in existing resources that you've got available. Yes. Let's move on to the next item on the agenda here, and that is social credit, C.H. Douglas. He was active in the early part of the last century and um, was an advocate for money reform. He put his finger on exactly the same problem that you do. The title of his book was The Monopoly of Credit. He went on a lecture tour, as I understand, in Japan, and they loved what he was saying, translated his works into Japanese and adopted his proposals and were successful. But I think they were targeted and, and taken out. That was World War II. Um, also, Social Credit had a, a run in Alberta and in British Columbia here in Canada, although they were not able to implement the full extent of the Social Credit policies by virtue of the fact that they were provincial powers and they couldn't alter the federal money system. So I wanted to know what your take is on Social Credit and whether you align PMC with that tradition. If you could forward me just the title so that I could get that. Um, that's something that I want to read. There's one aspect that you might be able to comment on, and that is that in C.H. Douglas's analysis, he identified that structurally there is not enough purchasing power in the economy. It distributes wages, salaries, dividends, but in all that, there's not enough money to actually go back and purchase the things that were produced. And for that reason, he advocates what we might call a universal basic income, but it's it's not that, strictly speaking. But it is a, a calculation, uh, a delivery back to each citizen of a, a certain amount, a dividend, in order to uh, make the circular flow uh, work properly. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, and again, that parallels, like you said, the universal basic income, which again, I think is a good idea. Um, it's the, but the devil's in the details. To have a more just and equitable society, uh, these are the kinds of things that we have to look into. Uh, but again, the moneyed interests, um, they do their best to quash these things. And it would be interesting to actually learn the history of social credit in Canada and how it got stomped out. Um, it's basically the same story every time. They usually use it as a, a lead into, okay, we're going to become a dictatorship or a communist country. Uh, which totally misrepresents, you know, what is actually happening uh, and comparing it, you know, with false equivalencies like social credit is the same as a communist dictatorship. Because the word social is in is in the title. Exactly. Let's move on to uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. My understanding of uh, the essential strengths of Bitcoin and 
associated cryptocurrencies is that uh, it's decentralized. That that's their argument. Um, people criticize it. They say it's not based on anything, or it's going to exacerbate the digital divide. I think they're advocating crypto on the strength that there's going to be no central controlling entity, and that will represent a true democratization of a currency system. What's your take on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Well, I'm not hot on it. Cryptocurrencies in the private sector, you know, they're mainly used as speculative instruments, and there's problems associated with it. There was a study from Cambridge University on the energy consumption for Bitcoin. Bitcoin ranks higher in energy use, usage than countries like uh, Finland and Belgium. Also, the volatility of cryptocurrencies. When Elon Musk was high on Bitcoin, Bitcoin went up. And then when he said, oh, Bitcoin's not such a good idea and sold a bunch of it, Bitcoin went down. So it's not really a, a true replacement for, for money. Well, if you were sympathetic to Bitcoin, you could say these are just features of the early stages. But in the long term, it actually does represent a viable alternative. First of all, because of this decentralization of control that I mentioned. And secondly, well, I was about to say privacy, but even they admit <laughs> that privacy is not very well protected by Bitcoin because you can all always go and examine the ledger. So uh, it would be the alternatives to Bitcoin, let's say Monero and others, that offer better privacy. You know, another concern is the scalability issue. Many of the most popular cryptocurrencies, now there's like about 19,000. The people that originate or create this crypto, they're the ones who make most of the money, almost like a pyramid scheme. Again, the concern about a scalability. So they're not scalable in either transaction time value or the amount of power needed to process them. So Bitcoin already has a lot of difficulties uh, when it comes to the amount of time and computing power needed to provide proof of work for a transaction. And the more transactions that happen, the worse the problem gets. You also talked a little bit about security. You know, there's a total lack of safety nets available. And this is, of course, all cryptocurrencies it's happening so fast that regulation hasn't had a time to, to catch up with it. To me, being decentralized is, is not really a benefit. Is it really being used as a medium of exchange? Acceptance by the average citizen. Crypto is not easily exchangeable for common everyday items. I should also mention how central banks worldwide are looking at this problem. The Bank of Canada will consider launching a central bank digital currency. I'm just observing. This is what they're saying. They're watching it closely. If some other payment method, like an alternative digital currency, was used more commonly than the Canadian dollar, well, then that would become a threat to our financial system. So they'd probably step in. The only thing that I disagree with is our financial system. So that's where it gets kind of complicated. But I'm just saying this is what they're concerned about. But the CBDC, if it was just plugged in as a replacement for cash as it is now, then it's not going to help the common man any more than the current system does. It's going to introduce a huge privacy problem. Exactly. So there's, that's another issue. And depending on how they structure it, some suggestions are that, yeah, they'll be able to tag that uh, dollar denominations everywhere you go and it'll be time stamped. So crime will be virtually impossible. Uh, but then that makes privacy virtually impossible. And I say we don't need a central bank digital currency. We just need to have more control over what money is created for and how it's distributed.
Well, coming back around to the Progressive Money Canada proposal, can you discuss the applicability of the PMC solution to other jurisdictions? For example, the United States is a combination of 12 regional reserve banks. They do the bidding of the central bank as a conglomerate. Of course, private ownership comes into play uh, with regard to their function, whereas Canada is you know, owned by the people or the government. And the UK is the same, too. They have a central bank that's owned by the people or the government. So there are countries that directly parallel. But with the PMC transition plan, they could do the same thing in the United States. Um, they would uh, empower the central uh, reserve system to create money for the government. Now, they can't do that right now legally because of uh, a little section, section 14.2b in the Federal Reserve Act where if they rewrote it so that uh, the, the reserve could uh, acquire securities directly from the government, uh, then they could do exactly the same thing as the PMC transition plan. And there's precedent for it, too. So there's examples of them doing that for, you know, short term cash operations to make sure that there is always money in the uh, operating cash balance of the TGA to fund government programs. According to a paper by this guy, Kenneth Garbade, who's been working at the Federal Reserve for a long time, he says the main reason why they discontinued it is because the private banking system was being cut out of the process. Okay. Your analysis so far comparing U.S. to Canada, how does that translate to other jurisdictions where there's a central bank operating uh, the world over? The central banks, do this; they have the same responsibilities worldwide. And they're basically there to support the, fi- the banking and financial system. And uh, they also act as a backstop to the government. So those are those two primary purposes. Okay. So is it your contention that the analysis that you've done for the Canadian system and the proposal that you're making would be applicable in these other jurisdictions? It would take, I guess, local action to analyze what their situation is. Yes, absolutely. I had kind of an encouraging conversation with uh, former governor of Spain, Miguel Ordinez. This is just recently at an AMI conference. He's another one of these people that thinks that, yeah, through a central bank digital currency, we could create a, a sovereign money system. So he's written a book on it. He said that three years ago, he couldn't even imagine that we were having the conversation that we were having. That was kind of encouraging for me because he's coming from a field where all the financial elites are communicating. And the the idea that we're even having this conversation right now, Ed, is, uh, you know, something that to him is just unheard of three years. He couldn't even imagine that we would be talking about things like this. So that was kind of encouraging. Things change all the time. And who knows what's going to be the tipping point where it really starts to roll. But the only way to start it is to talk about it and take action where you can. So that was the end of our discussion. And I hope you enjoyed this episode where I discussed with Jeff alternatives to the PMC plan in the monetary reform space. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, check the show notes, and visit our website, progressivemoney.ca.